Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 128. I, of course, am Ben O'Brien, and I'm joined by Phil T. Engineer. Say hello, Phil. Hello, Ben. We're feeling it today, huh? Uh, Yep. Something like that. Something like that. Phil seems a little melancholy. He's wearing a mask, getting ready to go to Costco. I love Uh, it. This is going to be a good episode. I I think, what, Friday? Got to talk to my good friend Wyman Menzer, and... uh, Shed a little tear during the interview. You may not be able to tell during the podcast, but we started talking about our dads, and I got a little verklempt, a little, you know, just a little something, something, and uh, a tear, a single tear, because my dad, Joe knows, we were out hunting when I found out uh, my dad had a heart attack not too long ago. Uh, He had four blocked arteries, four stents put in his heart, so that was gnarly, gnarly experience. So we talk about that. With Wyman, but also just his life, what he, th- how he thinks about wildlife, and a very interesting point that he makes about uh, regret in terms of trapping and killing predators, namely coyotes and bobcats, for basically his entire life. Uh, so he talks about that coming up. So you stick around for that. Before we get to that, Phil, uh, Phil's nervous, a little bit nervous. It's just the allergy medication. Is that's right? Yeah, he's been vape penning some <laughs> some Benadryl. That's right. <laughs> in the break, um, but we're gonna talk. I, I don't think we can do much here without talking about the current riots and the George Floyd case and all those things. I, you know, I don't know that we can go forward with any. Uh, I'm about to read some emails and silly things about White Claw and and you know what we do, Phil. This is kind of the thing, the show that we do. But before we get to that, I made a post on social media the other day about uh, my buddy Charles Rodney. You guys all know Charles Rabman Rodney, right, jo- Joe? You oh know yeah, Charles. Yeah. Um, just saying that it, I don't have uh, I don't have many black friends, but I do have Charles Rodney, um, and I've been lucky enough through Charles to learn a lot of things about my own perspectives on race and essentially people. <laughs> just you learn a lot from Charles Rodney, no matter what you do. You learn a lot about rabbit hunting, but also a lot about shared perspective. Him and I share a lot of things in common, and and boy, we share a ton of things that aren't in common. But one of the things that as I sat and thought about um, all that's going on in our country, uh, I definitely felt sad. 
I watched some. I watched the video of George Floyd getting assassinated by the police officer, and then I watched a bunch of looters uh, beating innocent bystanders and shop owners, and I just was very sad and couldn't sleep. Didn't know what to do, and so I was thinking about you know what's my place in all this. My place seems rather small. This podcast seems rather minuscule in terms of its impact on what's going on. But I will say that we have talked about this, the issue of race in the outdoors before. Um, We talked about it at length with Carolyn Finney back in November. Uh, We talked about it at length with Steve Rinella uh, a month prior to that. And then on episode 30 of the podcast where we first met Charles Rodney, we heard his story growing up as a poor sharecropper's son in segregationist Louisiana. And so I will say, not this isn't braggadocious at all, it's just to say that we've been thinking about this and talking about this here for a while in terms of how do we be more inclusive, how do we think proactively rather than reactive. I would much rather be proactive to the issues of race in America than reactive when somebody gets killed. Then I get very upset and that becomes my interaction with racial injustice. Um, I'd much rather address it before we're at this inflammatory stage where we are now. So I thought about having Dr. Carolyn Finney back on, uh, Jonathan Hall, a, a writer, a black writer, on to talk about it. But I went back and listened to Hunting While Black and Questioning Our Cultural Competence with Dr. Carolyn Finney, which was episode 89 of the show, featuring, featuring one Phil T. Engineer and Miles Nolte. And I felt that that, listening to the whole thing again, I was a little bit nervous that we we maybe didn't hit the right notes or I wish I had covered different things, but I was pretty proud of the result of that podcast. So I'm not going to go on any diatribes or have any guests on about what's happening right now. I think if you want to know what I think or what uh, THC in general thinks is the right approach to everything, go back and listen to that one. Listen to Dr. Carolyn Finney. Listen to Miles Nolte and listen to what we had to say back in November, and I think you'll get um, – all you're going to get from us. So, Phil, you got anything you want to say there, buddy? You can abstain or just... No, man. it's uh, It, fu- it fucking sucks. Mm-hmm. You know? My yep. wife and I tried to talk. I mean, not tried. We did. We talked to our seven-year-old, which mm-hmm. is, like, pretty young. But yep. it's like he's getting to that age where, you know, uh, just, you got to start exposing him to stuff like this. And it was really hard to... Because you got to give it context. Yeah. Uh, context of the history of this country, even before slavery. Like, the shit is just woven into uh, the entire history of, of this country and our ancestors that came before America. And um, it's very important to be incredibly proud of the things that this country does right and, and be able to understand all this, the shitty things this country does and try to improve. And... Uh, uh, and you know the reactions to everything. Um, I, I I don't even have a lot to say. I like I'm really glad you brought up the Carolyn Finney episode because it's more important for everyone to listen right now to voices like hers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. I you know I did have to address with my three year old for a minute, and he just started calling it the bad guy news when I was when I would like flip on the news and it would be on he would see it he was like is that the bad guy news not really i mean it's a little half and half at this point um but just really breaking it down for a three-year-old is a a nice way to give yourself some perspective be like be kind to be kind to one another and try to find 
however you can, however hard it might be, try to try to find empathy for everyone around you in your in your life, and then define what empathy is. And so, there's a lot of illogical shit being said out there by a lot of people. Um, people supporting murder, people supporting uh, violence and rioting and the destruction of property, people um, trying to take pick up a video of someone beating another human being and then rationalize it away based on some emotion of fear or anger or frustration with our society or some point in it. That's all bullshit. You shouldn't listen to any of that. You should find someone that's, that's you know, like my friend Joe Rogan or someone like him who is just expressing shock and awe and the need to be constructive. That's probably a better thing than most of the inflammatory stuff that you'll hear out there now. David Goggins had a great video that I watched. <laughs> as he always does. Yeah. As he always does. Great, um, great video. So I would seek out those constructive uh, perspectives, seek out those that wish to, to better themselves and better the people around them, and that's really all you can do at this point. Um, it's a confusing time, especially to be on any any media, news media, social media, doesn't really matter. It's a confusing time to, to uh, wade into those waters. I've tried to avoid much of that as I can, but here we are. So I'm, I'm incredibly sad. I'm incredibly pissed off at everybody that's doing things to harm this country because I love it. Uh, I know a lot of policemen, most of them, all of them that I know are wonderful people and would do anything to protect their community and the people around them. Um, I will say that we're in the office. There's a lot of people in here and everybody's walking by the door waving. So it's nice. It feels like we're back, Phil. Feels like we're back. My back's to the window, so I can't see can't anybody. See. I feel I feel there. real lonely right now. Yanni, Lakata, <laughs> everybody's out there. Everybody's out. <laughs> but anyway, it's a sad time. Um, we won't we won't harp on it any further. But I'm not going to be one of those ones that just makes us a hunting podcast and we forget about what's going on in the country, especially when it's it, it's this insane. We're definitely living in um, a Michael Bay movie, of some sort right now. I'm waiting for I'm waiting for the comet. I'm waiting for this, the the uh, astronauts that are going to come. Save us from impending doom. So uh, take a deep breath. Everybody take a deep breath. <sighs> breathe out. Breathe out. Breathe in, Phil. And breathe out. Don't, not towards me. because don't, don't breathe on the mic. Because of social distancing. <laughs> Other people have to use that. <laughs> and we're going to move on. Uh, so thanks for sitting through that. Appreciate it. We got some stuff to get into before we get to Wyman Menzer. Now, we got two weeks of uh, podcasts where we, I think we probably got the most emails ever. Two weeks ago was the tale of one Brett Bond and Glenn Bond, the bear attack that everybody's still talking about. And, uh, last week we had Robbie Sansom and Nick Holla. Uh, Robbie's from Force of Nature Meats, and Nick is from Impossible Meats, Possible Foods, as I was corrected, but there's meat there. So a lot of people wrote in with a lot of interesting thoughts. I'm going to start with the, the shorter one. There was, a, there was some criticism of how we did this. Um, and I'll explain in a minute, but I'll let Brandon Kendall, who wrote in, kind of put uh, his criticism into words. He said, I thought it was just a little underhanded that you had the Impossible Foods representative on, on first, and then you had the representative from Force and Nature Meats on after the fact to, in a sense, critique Impossible. If put in a similar situation again, maybe have the two on simultaneously so they can have a dialogue. I thought that was a bit unfair to Impossible Foods. Brandon goes on to say, that he uh, loved the show, and that's it's a nice little it's a nice criticism. One I thought of before we went into it. Phil, you listened to the thing. Did you feel uh, it went through my mind? <laughs> yeah, it went through my mind too. <laughs> uh, but um, 
you know, uh, I think I think you gave a good explanation of why you didn't want to have them on simultaneously because then it would might just turn into kind of like a a uh, polite shouting match or something like that. Yeah. Listen, <laughs> listen, I'm not I'm not here to say that I'm uh, I'm a completely impartial viewer of the situation. Of I, course not. No. I work for a company called Meat Eater. Uh, I eat meat. If you follow me on social media, I post a lot of pictures of meat and such. And so for me to then feign some impartial observer at that moment felt a little disingenuous to me. So I am, in a sense, acting as, as the proxy to what is a debate. Um, I've heard other podcasts and on this issue and similar issues surrounding it seem like just a tit for tat, study for study, data for data, and people just get off into the weeds so quickly that you can't really address some of the larger issues that are there. So I felt if you separated the two, you at least could hear them out and then you could compare and contrast. And many people that wrote in did say they were pissed off <laughs> by the end of Nick's portion and then redeemed <laughs> from <laughs> – redeemed from – I mean that's the, that's the your audience. I don't think that's ashes. a surprise. No, no. <laughs> Listen, we you know, we can do this and still recognize who we are and still try to explore things that are kind of outside our realm of of normal thinking. So that's what I wanted to do there. I do I take that criticism in stride because it's true. I did. I call I actually called um our buddy Robbie and said, "You want to listen to it?" And he said, "Yeah." I said, "Okay." And I sent him the the audio, the rough audio of the interview with Nick. I'm not I'm not trying to hide that. I'm all. I'm there. I'm right there with you. Um, it was not fair to Impossible Meats. It was a critique of them. And I feel a very necessary critique of what they're doing because uh, what they're proposing is pretty radical. So I felt like from perspective of somebody who eats meat and enjoys it, it is a necessary critique. Um, and so we'll probably continue to do it that way if we get back into that and we feel like there's two, two opposing sides. Um, but always open to suggestions. Joe, you got anything there? You want to add anything? Did you listen to that episode? I did. I think you did a great job. Um, but mm. it definitely went through my head too. That it was a bit unfair towards impossible meat. Yeah. Impossible foods. Yeah. But, you know. Too bad. Like you said, you never claimed to be <laughs> unbiased in the situation. <laughs> what a welcoming environment people are going to work. Was it unfair? Yes. <laughs> Come on my show and <laughs> defend your... Yeah. Come on my show. It's going to be unfair. You'll love it. No, but I mean, you, you've visited Force of Nature Meats. I think they are friends of the show. I don't think going into this, anyone was expecting an unbiased look at this. But no. I, And I, I thought it was a good, even though it was in the end a critique of what Impossible is doing, I think having them, having one of their representatives actually come on your show and mm-hmm. speak to their uh "Quote unquote benefits and the uh, you know was would would have been way better than you uh, reading off of their mission statement and like I, I think it was good to have them on and to have them sure. make the point themselves for I sure think and that was a good thing to do and I'll tell you and Joe probably knows this because we talked about this because he helped me schedule it I didn't know what to expect coming out of the impossible coming into the possible foods interview with Nick I had no idea if he was going to push hard against meat wholeheartedly if he was going to be unreasonable if he was going to parrot some of the more public comments that seemed inflammatory to me but he didn't do any of that stuff um, I definitely went into it open minded just with like some very curious questions but I also was just, I've also made a decision in that case to wear my bias on my sleeve and be like I'm a I am a potential consumer of your product but I'm a very skeptical um, consumer of your ideology don't really believe in it. I think it's got a lot of holes. So let's talk it through. I'll see where we go. You may get, you know, may bring me a little bit closer. You may push me a little bit further. And I would say, in in thinking about it, he definitely um, pushed me. Hey, girl. He definitely pushed me 
a little bit closer to his ideology. And it just it makes more sense than it did going in. And I think if, if you were to ask Nick if he thought that was when, I'm sure he would tell you yes. Um, whether what came after it. And, and I will also say, as an aside, I told I, when we were done, I said, Nick, here's what I'm going to do. You let me know if if you're not into this, if you think that's this is some sort of trap. I said, I'm going to send this audio to this person, and he's going to listen to it, and we're going to react to it together because I feel like he know, he has a perspective that's important. And Nick was like, fine, sounds good. And so at least being open both in mind and in, in approach, best I can do for you there. Um, but I appreciate that, Brandon, and, and uh, I, I take back the too bad, Phil. I could see that upset you. <laughs> <laughs> I could see you were mad. And yeah, I, it's your show, man. I thought it was funny. I just <laughs> <laughs> build the product you want. I'm just here to press the buttons. No, and make it, make I don't want to lose you. I don't want to lose you to Ranella. Somebody I like that. Was or I thought it was funny. All right, I put it back in. Great, it's back in. What okay. if he's already lost, Ben? I don't know. Well, we got uh, uh, one more. One more. Russell Edwards. He says, look, this is going to be hard to sum this up. But he opens with, good day, Ben, which I'm assuming means he's from Australia. I'd say that's a good assumption. Going to go there. Uh, he says, Thanks so much for having Robbie Sansom on your podcast after the impossible meets dude. I listened to the episode over several days and found myself seriously depressed after listening to the first guest. Sansom made me feel much more hopeful. Now, this is... As an aside, as I said, this is kind of what most people were saying. Especially to hear that we could actually feed the current population with regenerative agriculture, incorporating animals. What bugged the hell out of me was the impossible meats guy using the word efficiency. This is not a good word to apply to the living world. Think about what it means when your boss starts talking about efficiency. It means he wants to exploit you even harder. <laughs> I'll take a moment to make some points in my head. Uh... Thanks, Russell. Efficiency <laughs> means reducing living beings to resources to be exploited for profit and then exploiting them to the greatest possible degree. Efficiency as a goal is exactly what has taken the animal parts of our food system to horrible places. The vegan solutions to eliminate animals, as if nothing else matters but domestic animals, is foolhardy. But the entire living world matters, as do the non-living systems they depend upon. And so he goes on and on and on. At the end here, basically I feel like I'm getting your point, Russell. At the end, he starts getting a little sci-fi. Now, you you might like this, Phil. You like Star Wars. Mm-hmm. This may be something that they did on the Ewok planet. I don't, I don't the know. The forest moon of Endor. What's it? The forest moon of Endor. Okay. He said, um, possibly the next wave to watch out for in coming decades is artificial photosynthesis. That's right. Who needs plants? People are working on building panels that produce carbohydrates from atmospheric carbon dioxide, water, and sunlight. That, in turn, can be used as a processed food input or a biofuel. Just think about how they will spin that in efficiency terms. Where would that lead? One of those on every rooftop and the rest of the world given over to nature? Okay, so then the population expands and there is no rest of the world, just buildings covering everything, everywhere. Think this is all crazy talk? Google... The Kardashev scale. Scientists already considered it in the 1960s the concept of a civilization that exploits 100% of the energy that strikes its own planet in the form of sunlight. That's just a type 1 civilization. Can we keep going? We feel like we got it. It reminds me of the the capital of the Galactic Republic, Coruscant. It's a planet. It's entirely a city. Oh, yeah. Isn't that like a... No greenery. That's like a beautiful uh, croissant. What is it called? 
Coruscant. I'm hungry now. <laughs> Anyhow, I like croissant. Let's leave it with that one. <laughs> Anyhow, much like the planet of croissant, the Kardashev scale needs to be brought up here. We couldn't get through this conversation without the Kardashev scale. I was thinking that when I was talking to, to Nick, and then boom, here it is, you know. Um, I don't really have any response to Russell's email other than to say, like, I'm glad people are thinking about shit. No, it's yeah. good. I mean, he's Robbie, really thinking about it. Yeah, and Robbie brought up a lot of that uh, stuff in the response to Nick, where it's like, okay, so Impossible's doing these things to, uh, like, yeah, with only domestic livestock in mind, but what about all these other issues that this planet is having? Like, regenerative regenerative agriculture is working to solve other things That's right. um, that have to do with the rest of the, you know, environment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, a big part of this, I don't want to get into my theory about robots. Joe's heard this a lot when we go hunting. I got a theory. It's a growing theory about robots. I'll break it out at some future episode. And I also know that I promised I would tell an episode about shit in my pants in this, on this episode, but we don't have time. We got to tell it next time. Thank God. Like I feel is, is upset by it, that I was going to tell it. We're going to tell it next time. Um, but anyway, I think that this is like a big part of this conversation. We're going to have... Um, the authors of a book called Sacred Cow on and the documentary called Sacred Cow on here coming up. And what are their names? Diana and Rob. Diana and Rob. Yep. We'll go with first names and we'll learn their last names later. Rob Wolf. Rob Wolf. Diana Rupp. Like that? Mm-hmm. No, I think that's somebody I used to know. That was one of my teachers, my third grade teacher, I think. Rogers, I want to say? Uh, yeah, Diana Rogers. M.K. Dab Elementary. Diana Rupp. Miss Miss Rupp. I'm, I'm hitting the 15 uh, second skip button right now. Skip. In my head. Skip. Okay. Yeah. Skip. Let's get back. We cut this out. <laughs> anyway, back to uh, like this is this is gonna be cut out. And then <laughs> when I come, in. you're leaving it. In? When I come back, <laughs> I say things like, "Hey, listen, this is where the altar, where we like lay at the altar of technology and progress. You never know where it's gonna take us." And then I eventually, in a future episode, lay out my robot theory from that one time I took DMT. So that's coming up, right? Probably episode 1000. Okay. Yeah, okay. Is that your email, Ding, or mine? I think it's yours. It's, def- it's definitely Joe's. <laughs> so now Joe Get comes in. I finally muted my email, Ding, if listeners will remember. <laughs> now Joe comes in ripping I, I thought the my, my computer's 99% of the time on mute, so. <laughs> ben, I miss Boy. your email, Ding. Bring it back. I'll bring it back. I, I hit mute on it. Um, anyway, this is going way off the rails, I feel. Man, it's been we were back in the studio and it's been it's been hard to get this together, Phil. Uh, we got to get back. We got to get our sea legs back under us. It'll happen. It'll uh, happen. We'll be better next time. But for now, a fantastic conversation with one of the best humans living on the face of the earth, Wyman Menzer. Now, if you don't know Wyman, he is a, a legendary Texas photographer, wildlife biologist, teacher, uh, student of the outside, and one of my favorite people. So you can go back and listen to our previous episodes. If you want to learn about his story. Uh, it is amazing, but got a lot of good tidbits coming from him right now. Here's Wyman. Mr. Wyman, how are you, sir? I'm good. What's going on in Benjamin, Texas? Well, uh, actually, the weather is nice, and I've been uh, taking my youngest son up flying, teaching, uh, trying to teach him the basics of flying and just having a good time doing a lot of photography. Uh, real estate photography, mostly on ranches around the state, yep. and everything's been going well. Good. What's uh, what's the quarantine 
I imagine, if I had to guess, the quarantine hadn't affected you any, but I'll ask the question anyway. It really had. And the only time, uh, you know, I get involved uh, with having the quarantine is when you go in a government building. I went in yesterday and, and uh, used a little profanity telling them how stupid it was while I was wearing a mask <laughs> they handed me, and then I stomped out. <laughs> <laughs> I'd expect nothing less from you. <laughs> You're still on, That's why I like you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> how's how's everybody family selinda everybody good hey, everybody's there? doing selinda's doing doing well the boys are are fine and uh, rick's doing doing good so yep. uh so uh how about your family oh we're doing good yeah i was telling you we got chasing little kids around taking my son fishing for the first time the last couple of weeks and he's been he's eating up with fishing and eating up with we had a couple of bears got shot by my buddies, and so we'll be butchering bears in the garage. He's very interested in that idea. <laughs> That's great. So, yeah, he's he's living the, the three-year-old little boy's dream life. He's Currently, I can That's see him good. out the window behind me. He's playing in a dirt pile with uh, and his friends yeah. spraying him with a hose. So, yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, imagine that's how it should be. Oh, yeah, it is. Uh, well, I, you know, I wanted to – you haven't – it's been a while since we since you've been on, but since we've even talked – um and i will tell yeah. you that i i still it's probably been what almost almost two years a year and a half at least since we chatted and mm-hmm. i still get emails every week from people saying that you're their favorite guest your story is their favorite story <laughs> of all the people that have been on this well, show that's great oh Go ahead, Do you ever... be of hell. <laughs> well i mean we had the yeti film and we've had you know all the people that wanted to kind of immerse themselves in your story you ever think yeah. about that kind of what what your life and story has meant to so many people? Yeah, you know, uh, just recently on on Instagram, I uh, received a note from a young lady up in Alberta, and she said that uh, she had just watched the uh, the Yeti film and had decided that uh, that she was going to do she was going to live her dream. Yeah, she said. I, she said, you know, um, what you had mentioned about uh, perseverance, you know, sticking with the plan. Uh, even though receiving so many uh, rejection slips, and she said, uh, "I'm going to do it," and because of you, I'm I'm going to do it. Yeah. And I, that, that... I wrote her back, and I told her, I said, "Well, you know, just knowing that it affected one person in a in a in a positive manner, I said it's it's all been worth it." Yeah, yeah, it's definitely affected affected me and the way I live my life. But I tell you, you know, even her story, there's hundreds of people out there that feel the same way, and I'm sure when people here this coming week that you're that you're on they're going to be jumping on by the thousands just to just kind of like rehash you know what your so. your life's meant i'll tell you and it's been cool to me just knowing you and being around you that you know as authentic and real as you are people connect with it they just really do well i'm honored you to say that thank you um, well we should tell some stories now okay. i know last time we told you got a you got a million so i'll let you freelance and just kind of tell whatever stories you feel like <laughs> But from your, you say you're teaching. Are you teaching Pate to fly? Uh, yeah, yeah. Pate uh, bought a Challenger too. It's a light sport, and uh, and specifically uh, just to look for for wild cattle or cattle that they that they couldn't uh, find in a uh, say when they were weaning or branding, and to look at at uh, uh, water gaps, uh, uh, like say after a big rain, because most yeah. of this country is inaccessible deer after a big rain. And he's just absolutely fallen in love with it. I mean, he's, he just said, Dad, this is the most wonderful thing. Yeah. Well, how are you 
going about showing him the ropes in terms of what you've done in the past? Well, uh, you know, I got my pilot's license in what, 1977. And so of course I hadn't flown in four years. So I went and got my medical and, and everything. And, uh, and, uh, um, and then he bought the plane out of Whitewater, Kansas. And so a gentleman flew it in to Knox city. And then I went up in it. And of course I had never flown a, uh, well, it's been since 1990 that I flew, flew a light sport. Most of the, my flying has been in uh, post-World War II era, little tail wheel aircraft, you know, Pacer, Aronica Champ Chief, uh, flew a, bi- a bi-wing aerobatic for a while. But, uh, uh, you know, flying is one of those things like riding a bicycle, you know, it doesn't take much practice to get back in gear. And so this fella took me up in it. And... Uh, he didn't let me take off for land. And so uh, he said, okay, you got it. And I went, okay, that's great. Uh, thanks. And so he left and, and went home. And, uh, and so the next day I told Selena, I said, I have to, I need to get up. I need to get up in the air and this thing. I've not flown this plane. And so the next day I went up and it was rough. Uh, there lots of thermals. And... It was a, um, it was a real trick, but I got down, <laughs> everything worked out just fine. And now everything's cool. And I'm riding shotgun with Pate. And of course I'm going to, uh, he's going to go over and start working with an instructor. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get out of the plane until he's with an instructor and they check him out. I told yeah. him, I said, I'll show you the ropes and the things that you need to be learning. Uh, but the instructor is going to be your main, your main source. I said, yeah. Uh, I will not get out of this plane and let you go alone. Even though I know you probably can, uh, you, you're just going to have to go with the instructor and be checked out like I was. Uh, he's a menser. He pro- he'll figure it out. Um, <laughs> you better not. <laughs> <laughs> Did you tell him, you tell him a story? He knows the story about your crash, right? Yeah. 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 He was uh, just a little bitty guy whenever that, when that occurred, when I had that engine failure at uh, he- low altitude and had to t- take it in. You want to tell it? Tell everybody that story in detail. I know we well, probably was, told it before, but it's a good. Yeah, one. I, uh, I was looking for cattle for my brother, and um, and so I decided that uh, it, the last yearling couldn't be found. So I just banked, you know, went into an ascent to, uh, into a climb about 150 feet uh, altitude AGL, and the engine just quit. It was in a bank, climbing bank, and it just quit. And of course. My old flight instructor was a World War II pilot, a B-24 pilot, and uh, he hammered a lot of stuff in me about uh, altitude, airspeed, and instantly I realized that I was in uh, lethal trouble. There was a potential, you know, of everything going south, and so I nosed it over and started picking my spots real quick, and uh, and uh, the first, first two spots, uh, obviously you're not going to land where you came from. And my next two spots was a no-go because of brush and barbed wire fences. So I took a hilltop. And, uh, and so I, I uh, took it into rough country, and, and it flipped on me upside down. But I jumped out and walked away and looked back and said, the hell, damn, that was, that was rough. And I walked away. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you go out and hitchhike after to get home? Yeah, I, I hitchhiked. I went out to the highway, and a cowboy picked me up. And he said, hey, man, did you have a flat? And I said, no, I just crashed a plane. <laughs> or I actually crash landed a plane and he just stared at me and go, you gotta be kidding. I said, no, I need to go home. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when we were shooting the Yeti documentary about you that 
I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he just said he grew up with you, and he said, my mom just didn't like me hanging around Wyman. Mike Gibson, yeah. Mike Gibson. <laughs> yep, yeah. From, from the ranch, yep. Yeah, that I think that probably that's probably a good example of just why. Yeah, uh, yeah. Crazy yeah, things I, happen. I, was, I think I think that uh, a lot of people have said that uh, my brother and I were never house broke. <laughs> that's <laughs> so true. that pretty well sums it up. That's true. Well, a lot of like we've been talking lately on this show a lot about um, like a relationship to land, especially mm-hmm. because COVID hit and a lot of people that aren't in your situation or even mine are finding out about supply chains and where their food comes from and, and really the fr- the fragility of kind of our society and what self-reliance really is. And I feel like you're just the picture of, for me at least, the picture of someone that can just do for themselves and, and doesn't need to stress about many of the things some people are worrying about now. So do you, that all boils back down to your relationship with the big empty. Um, yeah. I, I've never met a person that has such a relationship with the land that has such an intimate knowledge of it, spent so much time on it. You've thought about that recently as, as you've watched the world kind of get turned around. Yeah. Um, I'm thankful to be out here. Uh, the only time that I've really kind of stressed out recently is our, uh, our main computer, my Apple died after nine years. And so we had to go into Wichita Falls and that was a, that was a real experience because, you know, they, everybody had to wear a mask and you go in and let you in one at a time. And that, that was a drag, but you know, once you leave the larger towns and get out here in the, in the smaller, smaller locations, it's not, it's really not like, uh, I went to a funeral this morning, hmm. actually a graveside service of a, of a guy that I've known all of my life basically. And, and, uh, I walked up to a lady there and of course everybody was standing around and I hugged her and she said, aren't you afraid of COVID? And I said, hell no, I'm not, you know, so let me hug you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, that, and everybody was the same way. Now there were some elderly people there that I'm sure had some, had some health issues such as the diabetics and that such, mm-hmm. uh, that type of thing. And they, they had masks on, but the majority of people, they were just milling around. It's, it just wasn't an issue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I knew, you know, without even talking to you, I kind of knew the stance that, that you would take just from the way you lived your life prior. Um, I said, if anybody yeah. I'm going to talk to that's not really too, you know, that understands the situation, but kind of just pushing through it would be you. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just not something, I mean, I feel sorry for the, you know, the ones who've been affected by it, but my goodness, I mean, you start looking at the, at the years that uh, we've had to go through various strains of flu and, and, um, you know, the relative numbers of people that were, that died, that perished from that. And it's, I mean, I hate to say this, but you know, it's, it's a political thing as far as I'm concerned. It's just a political move. Yeah. I mean, did you've had, I mean, you haven't spent, you know, for, for me, I've spent a lot more time with the family, a lot more time around home. I've got to kind mm-hmm. of think about priorities and kind of carved out a nice life here working from home doing these kind of podcasts sure. from here with the family and it's been I'm starting to get in a nice groove and I'm enjoying it uh, for you you know life hasn't changed like what's your you know I know you probably you're probably not doing much coyote hunting these days are you if any at all no I I mean I did a little bit this winter uh this this particular this past uh year we've had a tremendous crop of broom weeds and you cannot see an animal 
a deer, you just see the tops of their backs and their heads sticking over. Oh, wow. And so it is basically, it, it killed this year's uh, calling efforts, uh, for sure. Photography wise. I mean, you just, you just couldn't get any photographs. This is the first winter in recent memory that I've not taken any coyote photographs. Yeah. Um, I think I might've, I might've taken a rifle out and shot maybe 10 or 15, uh, called them through the, through the weeds and, and got a close shot or a running shot or something. But basically I just backed away and just said, I'm done. Yeah, you know, for this year, and and hope to God that we don't have broom weeds next year. Are are they invasive broom weeds? Oh yeah, it is terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, most ranchers try to spray for it, and uh, but it's pretty expensive. And those watching the bottom line that uh, that don't have a lot of oil income and uh, you know expendable income coming in that's you know beyond just the cattle, which the market now is is off. Uh, they just can't afford to spray. Yeah. And so, uh, and the, and the young broom weeds are already coming up. Really? Oh yeah. They did. They're, they you know, they're three or four inches tall and it's looking bad. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth hey guys turkey season is in full swing right now and if you are planning on getting after it make sure to pick up some meat eater phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now i carry a few different things i like to use mouth calls and i like to use pot calls Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand... 
one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I'll just have Yanni use his. Then I'll have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. Well, if people haven't listened to our first uh, interview, I will pause and let people go back and listen. Okay, we're back. <laughs> Hopefully you've listened to <laughs> Live and Tell His Whole Life Story. Um, but one of the things about your story that's interesting, and, and I've had other people tell me this, which I've always kind of gone back to your story, that later in your life, you know, these days you, you got away from hunting as much and you took up photography, and there was yes. a big shift in the way that you, you saw – specifically coyotes, because you spent so much time around the bobcats, I'm sure, as well. Can you talk through a little bit about where you were and where you are in terms of of hunting coyotes and other predators? Well, uh, of course, I I started hunting coyotes in uh, 1965 at the age of 14. And and I was totally, totally, a good way to say it, I was eating up with it. Yeah. Uh, I didn't go to parties. Uh, I didn't, I didn't participate in any, any public functions or with my classes or anything. All I did was hunted constantly. And, uh, my goal was to, and then this may seem silly, but I had a goal that I set when I was a freshman in college to be the greatest coyote hunter in America <laughs> and <laughs> a real lofty goal. <laughs> and so, uh, and so, uh, but with time and, and, you know, I, when I graduated uh, college in 74, uh, I still hadn't gotten enough of it. And so I moved out onto a big ranch. I had approximately 300,000 acres at that time. There was no public hunting. I mean, there was no uh, lease hunting. You didn't even hear a rifle shot. You didn't hear a shotgun and you would go days and days without seeing anybody but a cowboy. And I ran traps and I called coyotes, uh, day in and day out for winters. And, um, uh, but now that's changed uh, you uh, your whole perspective about life and appreciation for life, not just your own, but for all living creatures. I catch myself walking, and I won't step on a bug. I mean, if, unless it's you know, it's like it's a wasp or something. I do not like wasps. I've been stung enough by them. But say just a, a bug crawling across the road. My my whole philosophy is, hey man, you got a life. And who am I to step on you and and ruin that life? What goal you might have? <laughs> it's a bug's goal, <laughs> but to you it's a big one. That's and, right. And coyotes, I mean, and I still enjoy, and it's I think it's I enjoy hunting. Number one, uh, I wouldn't even hunt deer if it wasn't for the fact I needed venison. Uh, I have no interest in killing for horns, except to make coyote calls with them. Uh, but uh, I'm strictly a, a meat hunter. Yeah. And uh, as far as shooting rabbits and things like that, I will not do it. And used to when I was a kid, I shot them all the time. It's like, hey, you know, they, rabbits are here to feed something, and it's not me. And coyotes, um, mainly uh, I need to shoot 18 more because at 18 more, I will have shot 1,800 coyotes with a rifle. I need all- to do that. All in the book, right? All in your famous that's book. That's all in the. That's all in my books. And we'll talk about uh, that later. But yes, yeah. 
That's great. And so I do need to do that. And I'll probably start probably sometime in the summer because once fall starts, you have all your lease people coming in and, and they just infringe on their country. And I don't want to do that. And so uh, even though summer calling is not fun and I always wait also until the pups are out of the dens and can take care of themselves. And I won't, I won't shoot uh, an adult that might have a pup in a den because you, again, appreciation for life. Yeah. That's exactly what I was just going to ask you. Do you feel like it, you, it was required for you to go through what you did during your teens and twenties and, you know, being a trapper for a living to get to where you are now? It's yes. kind of a thing that had to happen. It had to happen. Uh, honey, growing up on a ranch, um, which uh, my dad uh, was a foreman known for, for 30 years, it's 27,000 acres, uh, bordered on the south by the Brazos River, fantastic hunting country, waterfowl, quail, didn't have a lot of deer. Uh, we had lots of coyotes and bobcats. And I just, uh, my brother and I both took to, uh, to hunting, you know, like ducks to water. And so it was just an imp important part of growing up, trapping. I remember setting steel traps for skunks and possums when I was in, before I was 10 years old. And so all of this was just a part of growing up. And that phase of life, as I mentioned in, uh, in the Yeti film, from A to Z, you know, you start out as a kid at A, and, uh, and now I'm at the, pretty well at the end of the alphabet, and I just I feel like life is real, real significant Yeah, for everything. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you don't really, you can't really set time out like that when you're a little kid. You're just kind of looking down at your feet, you know, looking what's around right. you. That's you can't right. really set time out as long as you know it'll be. But yeah, I've always found that interesting. That I've, I've met other people, I'll tell you, Wyman, and a lot of them are that are creative like you, that are photographers or whatever, that have had that same shift in sensibility later in life. Um, mm -hmm. And it, when, you know, I'm, when the out... I'm amazed at the, at the people who don't. I'm, I'm perplexed by it because, you know, I don't know you, um, in my, you know, the, even when I go out now to, to, to call with a rifle, you know, 99% mm -hmm. of my stuff is with a camera. But if I happen to, to take my rifles out to, to hunt, to kill, it is a very personal thing. It's not. It's not to, you know, high five a bunch of people. It's not to try to prove something. It's between me and that coyote or that bobcat. And, and it's, how can I describe this? It's like each calling stand is very personal. And I remember it with fondness. Uh, from seeing the animal to watch it, uh, its actions and its approach to what it took to bring it down, to enter it into my, into my books, into my journals. All of that is very personal to me. And it's, and it's not to win a contest. It's not to say I'm the best. It's just me and that, that one, that one experience that I might have. Yeah. Yeah. That appreciation, like you said, it's, it's so I've, I've seen it on a deeper level for myself. You earn it over time. The more that you struggle with yeah. you know, the craft of hunting or your ability to do it right, the more you kind of have appreciation for everything that goes on. Because I know you're making your own open recalls. You're reloading your own yes. ammo. And so do you think of that those things as a craft, essentially? Uh, for sure, making the calls. Of course, reloading ammo. I've, I've started that when I was 14 also, 
I was shooting with 30-30, my first uh, uh, decent high-powered rifle. And uh, and I reload now just because it's out of necessity. You know, I don't like to go buy, except for 22 rimfire ammo. Yep. Uh, but the making of the call is a real crap. I mean, it's, that's, that's, uh, that's woodwork and, and getting the exact sound that you need. And that takes a, a little bit of skill. What take, take people through that, you know, like what's the raw material and then what's the process? Well, uh, I can make it out of various kinds of wood. I prefer mesquite, uh, juniper, uh, uh, Osage orange. Um, I've made it out of, uh, ebony wood out of South Texas, which is really hard wood. But you just take a chunk of wood, maybe uh, four inches long. And a lot of times I'll take a, a, a mesquite. What's actually the best and, and the most beautiful is a piece of the, what they call the, the rootstock of a mesquite, which is underground. And we're talking old mesquites, what they call here bull mesquite. And you, you might have a, a ball that's, that's uh, bigger than a basketball. And you take a chainsaw and you slice it like into, uh, um, looks like kind of a, a roundish pie and probably two inches thick. And then I put it on a, a table saw and I'll slice it into bars. And then I slice those bars into smaller bars, the length of a call. And then I go to a, uh, a sander and I, with my hands, I'll sand it, I'll spin it and sand it down to the configuration I want it. And then of course you drill your holes and uh, that, that accommodates a reed if you're going to make an enclosed reed, or you take a little uh, Dremel tool and you saw out the mouthpiece if it's going to be an open reed. And with open reed calls, they're very difficult to make. Uh, no two calls sound alike. I've got probably 38 or 40 of my personal calls, and all of them are open reed, and none of them sound exactly the like, alike. And I've got a couple that sounds kind of, but each one has its own sound. And I can't make two that, that, that sounds the same. And as much as I've tried. And it depends on the type of reed material. It depends upon uh, the curvature of the mouthpiece. It uh, depends upon uh, the opening, uh, that uh, the, your air passageway. Uh, there's just a lot of factors involved in making a call and, and getting a certain sound that you want. Thinner reeds make maybe a higher pitch sound. Then a thicker reed. It's, um, but then again, uh, that also ties in with the with the size of the the air hole that goes through the the, the mouthpiece. And so when I make a call, it's like everything is freewheeling. It's all freelance, man. It's it's out there. It's out there. Well, I tell you, I've seen them work. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> yeah. I've ever. I don't think you and I have ever sat on a coyote set where you haven't called one in. I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to pump it up too much, but I'm pretty sure. Yeah, well, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, last year. Okay, the previous uh, winter, which would be uh, 2018, 2019, was a tremendous year for calling. Hmm. I mean, it was tremendous. I have my notes here. And I don't recall exactly. I made 200 and 200 and something stands and called up. I don't know, 185 coyotes, uh, something like that. Yeah, it was tremendous. That's uh, most of them I photographed. But um, this year, the only really good luck I had was in South Texas when I, I was, um, uh, I had a, a predator calling photo safari on a ranch, 150,000 acre ranch, and we called up I don't know probably 35 coyotes in a couple of days, 
Yeah. And the uh, previous year to that, I think we got in 48 in a couple of days. And if only and you would call daytime. If only you would make a book of, of coyotes you've called in and let go. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, I remember the, I remember the first time I met you over at the Spike Box Ranch, right? Was that the ranch we were at? Right. I believe uh-huh. so. You, we had a group of guys over there coyote hunting, and you came over. And I remember seeing this book and not understanding. It was a series of books, not one book. There mm-hmm. seemed to me. And it was they were kind of stuffed pages going everywhere, but just a big stack yeah. of paper. I thought, well, what could this be? And then you started going through each line and the thumbprint, um, the blood thumbprint of each of each coyote you had killed, who you're with, the weather, notes about the conditions. Correct. I'll never forget that because I don't. It's such a unique. You know, I know you have a you know a, a background in, in wildlife biology, but I don't think every biologist does that for that long. No, they don't. In fact, uh, whenever I sent uh, this information to a friend of mine who was a statistician and he put, uh, he kind of did some statistical analysis uh, on it. And he said, I can almost assure you there's no data like this anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is one of a kind. And you said it's over 1700 entries. Is that what you're saying? Uh, thereabouts. Yeah. It's, it's a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever think about Uh, my first yeah, my first hundred coyotes when I was a kid, I'd, I'd, all I did was just put an X to the number. Yep. And then after that, I started thinking, well, you know what? Uh, maybe I should start taking more thorough notes because this is something that could be used someday in the future, you know, to, you know, after long after I'm gone. And then uh, several years ago, I decided to start using a blood print for possible DNA analysis because uh, I know, uh, I don't know, I'm pretty sure that biologists today would love to have a DNA analysis of the uh, now extinct Texas buffalo wolves yeah. to figure out if there's any connection with them and the other, what, 12 subspecies of, of wolves in America and in, in Canada. Yeah. Oh, well, you're, uh, so. you're so connected. You're so connected to the land that way. I mean, because only because you've lived on it and lived through it. Um, and this is just another, how many years of, of were you making entries in that book books uh since uh well 1965 i guess man yeah. i'm not good with numbers i think that's 55 <laughs> years why <I'm... laughs> that's a long time <laughs> that's a long time. i know my first my first entry my first entry was actually on a piece of folded cardboard that i still have and it has the date it has uh uh who was with me the rifles we were using, and that I called up a coyote and shot it at 247 yards running. And uh, with a 30-30, with a two-and-a-half power scope on it. <laughs> He's, yep, you're, you're Jeremiah Johnson, the big empty. Somebody, <laughs> somebody fact, smart said that's, That spot is still, uh, whenever I shot it, my friend and I piled rocks up on that blood spot. Yeah, you took me and there one still time. Still there today. Yeah, I remember that. You showed me there the one time. I was like, in That's... fact, just about a couple of months ago, I went down there and trimmed because there was a skunk bush had uh, had grown over it, and I took a chainsaw and trimmed it away so that I could find it again to show my grandkids. Let me ask you. Here's an interesting question that's popped in my head. Have you ever used a GPS before? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Do you feel like you have a knowledge of the land where, you know, the, the ranches that you grew up on and that you lived on, the pitchfork and, and some of those, where you, you could just go to these places and your knowledge of the landscape, even as it changes, is so in-depth that you could just stroll through and you know where you are? Uh, yes, for the most part. Now, some of the some of the more distant spots that I had to walk to, you know, that might be a little difficult because uh, of the brush, uh, encroachment of brush on some of these areas. It's just, it's difficult to find. But for the most part, I could, I could go back to the same spot. I can, can go, go back, back to the same spot we, where I set a steel trap in 1974. You ever, is that like, have you ever talked to Celinda or your kids about having some sort of uh, photographic memory, like some special power <laughs> well, that nobody's aware of? <laughs> that memory is not as good as it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's still probably pretty good. We'll have to get Celinda on. We'll have to get your, your wife on for a post-interview. <laughs> yeah. Recap you your abilities, your memory <laughs> abilities. Yeah, I, I mean, is there other things you know, like th- that define your hunting life? The book, I feel, feel like your books definitely do. Your the craftsmanship of making the calls and the way that you've kind of carved that part out, but also your photography, which I would imagine mm-hmm. is your art, is the way you express your art, um, your creativity. Yes. Talk about how that's kind of. Re- evolved over the years i mean you started out just trying to figure it out yeah um i think that probably the hunting played a big role in in the way that i photograph at least the angles that i use in my appreciation for light um of course um i began i developed an interest in photography as a child but didn't really get into it until I was at, in college whenever I was involved in some research on coyote behavior. And of course, uh, uh, my major professor, Dr. Eckert, loaned me an old Argus C3 or something. I forgot the name of it, but, or the model, but uh, I took that with me and that's, I kind of like, wow, you know, this is cool, 35 millimeter. I had all the Kodachrome. Uh, he furnished all the Kodachrome I needed and I, and I started shooting and, and, um, of course, probably because I didn't take any courses in photography, that was an asset in me establishing a very personal style. Because I know that whenever I was teaching at Texas Tech for 12 years in, in uh, photography, that was something that I did with my students is that I explained to them, I'm not going to tell you how, you know, A, B, C, D, this is the basics, you know, your focus, you know, your uh, uh, selection of, of subject matter, your composition is important, uh, the use of light is important, but I'm not going to tell you your, the style that you need to have. You need to develop your own. And where I think that had I taken a course, I know, I think in, by talking to people who took photography in the earlier years, the instructors would would try to influence, you know, the, the style of a person. Well, I didn't have that. I didn't have that, that, uh, someone to spoil that for me. I just went out and just started shooting as I saw as a hunter, you know, eye level or below because I set a lot. I made my own, if I'm setting a blind, it was on the ground made out of sticks. I never set in elevated blinds. And so I saw at the level the animal was seeing. And, and to me, that was exciting. And that's what I tried to convey. And that was, uh, 
supported by Gary Gretter, uh, the art director at Sports of Field Magazine in 1981 when I was talking to him one day on the phone, asking him, you know, what can I do to break into the, to the big three market? And he said, well, he said, show me something different. Also, there was an editor at, uh, no, it was, it was uh, Gary Gretter and James Eisenman, both from Sports of Field. How I remember those names, I don't know. I was about but to say, anyway, there's, your, there's that photographic memory we took. <laughs> <laughs> they, they told me, they said, uh, we like your eye for light, and we like your angle that you shoot from. And so they said, just continue that, but select a different subject that's being shot. And I started Wild Turkey because people weren't doing Wild Turkey much. And that's how I broke into the big three, was I had three uh, national covers in one month with nothing but wild turkeys. But I spent 36 days nonstop, morning and afternoon, photographing wild turkeys. I mean, every morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, I got up, went down on the river, used turkey calls, made blinds out of sticks, made blinds out of gunny sacks, and used a diaphragm turkey call. And I photographed turkeys like it was the thing that was going to keep, you know, that was going to save my life. And, uh, and it got me, it broke me into the big markets. And the, the big three back then was what? Field and stream, sports of field. Outdoor life. Outdoor life. Yeah. Yeah. When they were separate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that it's an amazing thing now. I, I actually had an email from a young man who's a college student the other day. And he asked me, what do I do to break into writing and the outdoor industry? Mm-hmm. People ask that all the time, but I never, it's hard to respond to that. Um, it is it's hard to know what to uh, say. It, you, I hate to say this, but really, digital as a photographer, digital photography is nothing. I mean, photography today is nothing like it used to be. Yeah. When you live by the rules of Kodachrome and uh, and Fujichrome, life was different than it is today. You had to be very much. Uh, you had to be exceedingly more knowledgeable. It wasn't this chimping and looking and going, I, oh, I can change this right now. You shot, and then you waited a week to see if you had gotten the image. Yeah. And it just made you, well, it, it was like, it's like when my dad, when I was nine years old, and then he bought me a Stevens 410, he gave me two shells. Number one is because they were too expensive. Dad couldn't afford them. But he would get in the closet and reach up and get that box where I couldn't reach it, and he'd hand me two shells. He said, this is what you got today. And you made them count. And when you shot Kodachrome and Fujichrome, you tried to make it count. Uh, I just went through a bunch of my images that I'd shot in the Yukon Territory in 87. I just did a bunch of editing. Not editing, but I got them on Photoshop just to see what I'd, I'd taken. And, man, uh, you're talking about tough. I mean, almost every day you had overcast skies, you had rain, you had hail, you had wind. We were on top of Rose Mountain. I was photographing a stone sheep hunt for Sports of Field. And we were up there for nine days, camped out, uh, two of us, three of us in a two-man tent and the other two guys in a two-man tent. And I was carrying a 302.8 and a couple of other lenses, and I could have done without the 302.8. As you well know, being a backpacker, Four pounds can mean life, you know, the difference between life and death. Damn right. And I had an extra four pounds there. That's a lot of Snickers and bars you could put in there. That's a lot of, that's a lot of old Henry's we were eating <laughs> in the Yukon back then. <laughs> but, uh, but it was tough. 
But with digital, I mean, I could have knocked that out so easily. I oh, mean, it, yeah. it would have been just just nothing. Yeah. But I mean, the, the story got published, the Yukon Adventure, but it was a lot of hard work. Well, and that's I, I actually in that response to that I believe Dan Curtis is his name. I'm sure he'll listen to this. But I just said that in in, in the modern digital age, it's similar with photography that is other crafts. When we write an article, we post it right to the internet, and we get immediate feedback. Did it get clicks? Right. Did it get engagement? Did it did it yes. do its job? And yes. I just encouraged him to like back off that for a minute and work on the craft of expressing your thoughts coherently and 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 in the way that it is authentic to you. And if you can figure that out first, you'll figure the rest of that stuff out because it's plug and play. But right. the craft, you can't go back and relearn that craft and i know you know it's it sounds to me like those years you had to know the craft because you it'd be a week before you got home from the yukon before you knew if you did a good job or not and you sent your images off and it was a week getting them back yeah and so but you're right i'll tell you what the the digital age has done for me though at least on on uh on uh ig and and facebook is uh that i've been very particular about about editing what I write because uh, I've kind of developed a style that I, that I post. If it's not a political rant, which I'm doing fewer of those cause I'm tired of them. Yeah. Uh, but I'll, it's experiences, uh, something about history, uh, something about just the land. Like for instance, this morning, I, when I went on my morning walk, I took my, uh, my iPhone and I was photographing bobcat tracks, coyote tracks, um, uh, Textures in the sand, the way the, the recent rains have created these textures, um, and maybe a Indian artifact or something, you know, some just something uh, about the the, uh, the, ha- the the habit, the, the habitat, you know, skunk bushes and how the roots are being washed away. And then I'll refer back to the writings of Randolph Marcy in 1854 when he walked across this country and how he defined the land. And then the way I view it today, how it's changed probably from when he was here. And so uh, I've gotten to where I really am into the editing portion. And that's a good thing because when I used to write articles for Peterson, yep. uh, for the American Hunter back in the 80s, it was all done in longhand on a yellow pad. I remember one day I wrote two articles for a, a outdoor photographer. They wanted two different articles and then I wrote them both on a yellow pad. <laughs> what did you mail them in then? I mailed it in. I, I, well, I typed it out then. Yeah. Typed it out, but yep. but uh, I think that my style has really improved hmm. because of uh, Facebook and uh, and IG, Instagram. Yeah, like you said, it's that because I'm really I'm, I'm really I'm really, and I hate to say this, but I really watch what articles or what I say articles. They got to be within a you know a reasonable uh, link. But what really touches people, and and I want it to be very uh, positive. I always want it to be positive, something that they can, you know, be, uh, they can think back on, and and maybe this, you know, how it affected them in their lives. If if they were, if my uh, story was something they could relate to. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're on Instagram. It's it's been a pretty new uh, thing, right? Getting on there. It's real new. I think what February. <laughs> I'm, I'm I love it, man. When I saw you on there, I was like, that's gonna change it. That's gonna make it better uh, <laughs> right away. I hope so. Well, I, yeah, and I think 
what you're saying rings true in a lot of ways, and but it's also a bit of a trap for me personally when you kind of know, you know that I, I know if I put a certain type of image up, I'm going to get a reaction, right? If I put up an image of beautifully bloody backstrap, just seared and beautiful, and I'm about to eat it, I know people love that. I know people love mm-hmm. a grip and grin with a dead animal. I know there's certain just certain things I know from the experience of being on there. And I try not to train myself to chase that, but at the same time, you want to kind of have a relationship with the people that are reading and seeing your stuff. So it's, I find yeah. that creatively, I find that a, just a tough thing to, to measure. Well, I tell you, I try with mine is to cut a, cut a swath across a wide uh, a section of viewers from both the other side who don't want hunt who appreciate just photography. And then I add just enough to bring in the people who like the hunting as well. And so I'm just kind of ducking in and out, you know, just sort of like, you know, Bob and weaving. Uh, I, I want, I want to hit everybody. I want to hit yeah. everybody. Yeah. Now and it works. So I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't post anything that I've killed because, uh, to be totally honest with you and be rather blunt, I've killed them. I've killed plenty. Hmm. And, and I don't, I don't like to, to show a dead animal anymore. You know, I don't even like to really even look at the pictures that I, that I've taken of myself with dead animals. Yeah. I know that they may, might seem an extreme, uh, through the other side of the fence to go, but I appreciate hunting. And, um, but it, it's almost like I try to approach from more spiritual, you know, a, a realm. Yeah. No, I, I've, I, I've gone that way, I guess, earlier in life than you than you did. But I still, I still find that there is a struggle that you gotta that that life and death struggle. You kind of gotta wear it on your sleeve if you're being honest with yourself. You know, yeah. at some level, that's that to me at least the healthiest way to approach it. Like I know this is life and death for that animal, and I gotta kind of wear that. And if I don't wear it, it, feels like I'm just kind of brushing it off, so I don't have to deal. That's with true. It. It's it is true, you know, and I'll and I'll I'll admit. I mean, uh, my big deal now. If, if I'm gonna, if I really need to kill something, I'm gonna go out and kill a grackle, a boat tail <laughs> grackle, <laughs> because they are totally a useless creature. They they destroy doves' nests, and what was it about five years ago? I killed one thousand four hundred and seventy one grackles with a twenty two. Mm. And you, uh, you didn't, re- I didn't record those. Probably didn't record those in a book, did? <laughs> No, I I did record the final number. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's always been, you know, the way you're able to articulate kind of your journey. That's always been the most interesting part of it for me, and I think other people too. That you're you're able to now sit and say, you know, I'm a 34 year old man. Am I looking in the future? Is there going to be a time where I look back and have regret about some of the killing I've done? I know you talk, you tell a wonderful story about a certain coyote and a certain trap that you remember yes um i'd love to love to hear that because i think it is always just so so raw to me when i when i hear you tell it yeah that uh i, I can i find myself revisiting that day and i <laughs> that was 1974 and uh and it still brings back emotion and there has been counting traps and and rifles you know there's been thousands of coyotes since then but that particular moment it just I don't know. It did something to me. It was a young coyote and, and it didn't jump at me. It didn't try to bite me. 
you know, didn't try to to, uh, to lunge like a big male will do sometime. And then when I shot it, it just, it was almost like in its face, it, it looked at me and went, why'd you do that? And then it just rolled over and I, and I, I sat down and cried. I sat down mm-hmm. and wept because of it yeah. and wondered what in the hell am I doing? But I'd chosen that lifestyle for that winter to do that every day. And so I continued. I yeah. skinned him and I sold him. But it, yeah. that's, boy, I'm telling you, that's, to, to this day, I still feel that emotion. Then there was another coyote, right, that you gained some respect for that kind of turned and snarled and, and didn't give up, right? The one that I caught in a trap. Yeah, I still remember. It was J2 pasture on, the, on the, this big ranch. And, and uh, <clears throat> I, still, I still remember it was a cloudy, overcast, rainy day. I believe it was in probably December. And I remember I had a Canon TL with a 50 millimeter lens. That, that, was, that was all I had with me that particular day in a Kodachrome 64. And it was a big male. And, uh, and that, that coyote, I mean, he, he just looked at me and said, just bring it on. And I thought to myself, you know, here I am. I'm fixing, I'm fixing to dispatch you, skin you, and sell you. And you're going to be one of many. And I'll forget which hide was yours, which fur was yours, but you have, uh, you've made a, you know, you've made an impression on me today because you know that this is the end. You're caught in a number four new house trap. You're not getting away. And I'm standing here with a 22 pistol. And I mean, he just, in his eyes, it was like, bring it on. I'm ready. And yeah, I've never forgotten that. I have that photograph and yep. it was published in Texas monthly as one of their great, photographs that was taken in the uh, that published in 25 years of texas monthly yeah when i think of your images i think of that one particularly because i know the story too and i, I remember seeing it and it is that like i'm going down swinging look on that coyote's yeah. face and i know yeah and i'm sure this i'm sure this is true and you would agree that the amount of time that you spent taking up close photos of these coyotes learning because when you call a coyote to kill it call it in and you kill it and it right. the interaction is more transactional. When you call it in to take the photographs, you're, you're kind of capturing its its essence, its emotions, what it's doing, what its right. motivations are, right? And I'm yeah, sure that exactly over the that. years, yeah, over the years, you've kind of come to, to know these animals in that way. Yeah, when you when you call them in to photograph them, you're looking for those expressions. And it's, it's so, uh, sometimes I find it amusing. Like, for instance, uh, a guy would have called up a year or so back and it came around the, the, the cedar bush. I thought it was coming in and coming down wind. And it came around the bush with the intention. I mean, he came, it, it came around ready to fight. It's one of those rare ones because most of them come in kind of like, oh, God, you know, I don't know if I ought to do this or not. This guy came in to whoop somebody's ass, okay? And, and the wind was in my favor. And as it trotted by me so close that I had to pull back with my 100 to 400 to like 100 millimeters, it was bowed up, tail was bushed out, hackles raised, its head was low, its ears were down, had a slight grimace on his face like, you know, I'm fixing to kick your butt. And then all of a sudden, it, you could see the expression in its eyes change. And it was like, oh, shit. 
<laughs> I mean, I screwed up. And that coyote, last time I saw him was like 400 yards, and it was nothing but a cloud of dust with this, with this uh, gray streak in front of it. <laughs> this well, projectile. Running <laughs> run through the big empty. I, I've had I've a lot recently. We've talked to uh, vegans on the show a little bit, animal rights folks, uh, people that think differently than you and I in terms of this. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the you know what you've developed through your life kind of has a is a weird mix of you know because when you have an animal rights person, they they really are thinking about the animal, that single animal, its emotions, mm-hmm. what it what it wants to do, its family. They're really personifying or anthropomorphizing those right. animals. Um, and I've always, you know, now that you're kind of describing that, there's some elements of, of where you are today, right? Like what you have done and where you feel that there's some emotional connection to these animals. There is. Um, you know, it's like I, I did a research paper one time when I was at, at Tech, and, uh, and it was on wolves, the gray wolf. And, uh, and it talked about family, you know, family units and the, uh, uh, what would you call it? The alpha and the beta, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that hierarchical system within the pack. Of course, coyotes don't have that, but when you work with them as much as I have, they're an extremely intelligent animal and, and they interact with one another. I've watched them, uh, uh, coming in in groups, especially in the mating season, and how they react and they play, and you start realizing, you know, yeah, they, you know, they they know each other, and they're not just some animal out there that's that's has no soul, basically. Hmm. You know, they they recognize one another, they interact through vocalization with one another, uh, through scent, you know, olfactory. Uh, uh, means and uh, and you, you you sort of like uh, think of them as you know as really a living being. It's not something you shoot and just throw away. And that's one of the reasons that I take all these notes. I don't want each each one that I've that I've harvested. I don't want them to be to be shot in vain. Uh, whether someone uses them after I'm long gone, uh, you know the next you know two generations down and my notes are if they're still around and people can look at them, they perhaps learn something uh, where something that might change people's attitude toward predators. See, that's back in the seventies, in the sixties, fifties, let's start out in the fifties. I still remember the fifties and sixties whenever, you know, the poisons were being used, the 1080, the strychnine, thallium, you know, the bad stuff, the really rough stuff. And to all, almost all landowners, it was like coyotes are bad because they look bad. They look like a wolf. And in the early uh, 20th century, wolves were basically deemed Satan's. You know, they were like yeah. Lucifer. They were here for one reason, that was to kill cattle. Uh, and I think that was that was probably transferred over to coyotes because they look like a small wolf. And, and I started this, the, I started having this attitude in the seventies. Uh, whenever, uh, I would talk to ranchers and they'd, they'd blame everything on coyotes. I said, well, you know, that's not true. 
you know, I know because I was raised on a ranch, I know that, yeah, you've got calves out here and I know some of them die, but you don't know what kill that calf. So don't blame everything on coyotes. And so I was kind of a champion, you know, a guy who championed coyotes, even when I was killing so many of them. And so now I've become even more that, that way. And I hope that through these notes that I've taken and the research that I conducted while I was at, I was at Texas Tech will someday even further influence that attitude toward predators. I think it's changing. Yeah. And, and people are realizing, hey, coyotes aren't the demons. They are not the demons that, that so many people have, uh, have made them out to be. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I like hunting coyotes. I mean, not as much as I used to, mostly with the cameras we've already, already talked. But I will continue every once in a while to shoot a coyote with a rifle because I like to shoot. I like to. I've told my wife and other people, they say, why do you still, you know, hunt coyotes occasionally? Because it was so much a part of my being and growing up. And, and, I, and it's, it may seem funny, but I like to know I still have it. It's like some men like to chase women, not me, to see if I still got it. I like <laughs> yeah. to chase coyotes every once in a while with a rifle. I can still shoot at 250 yards. Yeah. I can still roll a coyote at 100 yards at a dead run. I can still snap shoot as a coyote passes between two two bushes and nail him just as he appears, right before he disappears, a snapshot. And then I congratulate myself. I go down and I take my notes. I take that blood thumbprint and I go home. And I'm happy not to shoot another coyote for weeks, if not months. Yeah, I mean, you, you came up so, in a time where it was, you know, this these things were really getting going. I mean, you look in the, the 1950s when... Coyote mm-hmm. pelts were, you could get up to 20 bucks, 25 bucks for a coyote. Well, it, pelt, you, you know, know, in the in the 70s, that's when it started. When yeah. I was a junior at Texas Tech uh, in 1973, I had no idea that you could uh, make money with, with coyotes. And one of my professors, Jaron Flinders, uh, who's uh, back in Utah, his home state, uh, I, I went out one weekend and uh, just camped out, and I shot 13 coyotes that weekend. And I was, I was looking at the picture the other day. I had a tent. I not a tent. I had a piece of tarp stretched over a, a larret rope tied to a fence post and a shovel. And that was my tent for the weekend. And I had all these coyote tails hanging up. And I showed that professor. And he said, hey, man, you ought to be skinning these things. And I said, well, I didn't know this bring anything. He said, well, let me, get, let me get a hold of a fur buyer in Utah, Big Sandy, Utah, or a Sandy, Utah. And uh, he said, yeah. I said, send to this guy. So I called him. and. He said, well, I've never bought from Texas. I don't know what they're bringing. And so I sent this one skinny coyote that, I'd, that I had uh, taken the pelt from and sent it to him. And I got a check for 15 bucks. And in 1973, 15 bucks was something. So, it meant that I could now go home on weekends instead of ride a horse and work cattle all weekend. I could hunt all weekend. And so that's, uh, that's whenever I started uh, actually selling pelts was 1973. 
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth because i mean you're coming off of decades where the coyote was vilified and yeah you, know, you talk about pioneering the the west i mean the ni- early 19th century when lewis and clark first encountered them all the way till when they become this like there's a war of extermination against them in the decades right. after that and then now i think with I don't know if you've read Dan Flores' book, Coyote America. It's a, it's a great one. Uh, he's been on here. And, and now, you know, like with guys like him and you're, even the way you speak of coyotes, people are starting to understand them a little bit more because as prolific as they are and as amazing and an adaptable animal they are, I understand you know their ecosystem service that they provide. I certainly mm-hmm. don't down people for hunting them, but I think if you're going to mm-hmm. hunt them, you need to understand them. And what they do, they're not just—they don't just kill every fawn that drops. They, I mean, there there's so right. many things that we have to get over, you know, as 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 a society about the coyote. Well, I'll tell you something that a lot of people don't understand is uh, is Dale Rollins, Dr. Dale Rollins, who's a premier research uh, individual on on quail populations, and his work has proven the scientific research guys working on their masters and PhDs and such that uh, where you have coyotes, you have the best quail populations because coyotes are predators on raccoons, skunks, and opossums, those creatures who prey on nesting birds. And so Dr. Rollins' uh, uh, conclusion is, hey, if you want uh, a really good quail population, you better leave your coyotes alone to some extent. Don't go out and try to shoot every one of them you see. Because yeah. they're doing some good out there. Because let me tell you something, with with people, especially in Texas, now that I'm probably going to raise some ire here, but 
it seemed like nobody in Texas knows how to hunt deer anymore except from a blind off a corn feeder. <laughs> uh, I'm proud to say I've never done that. Yeah. And um, corn feeders create a, a uh, superficial population density increase in, in so high in raccoons that had it, if it weren't for the, the, the feeders and then and the amount of corn that's being fed, we wouldn't have as many raccoons. Yeah. And so these dudes are out there really racking up a toll, you know, racking up some numbers on some, on, on nesting birds and uh, coyotes go after these dudes. Yeah. And skunks as well. Yeah. And I remember in other conversations that we've had on this podcast, you start to realize because how how quickly coyotes have spread across this country. I mean, they live in swamps. They live in every ecosystem you can mm-hmm. think of. They live in swamps. They live in the plains. They live in the big empty. They live in the brush country of Texas. They live in Mexico. They live California. They thrive there. And thinking about how, you know, our human attempt to kind of wipe out predators from from these food chains, the coyote is kind of like a spasmatic way for nature to be like, oh, you're gonna kill all the wolves here. We'll put these back. We'll put these here. You're gonna eliminate this part of of, of the ecosystem. Well, here comes the coyote just taking over. And I've yeah. seen that. I'm I'm a young man, but I've seen that in my lifetime. You know, when I was a kid in Maryland, we didn't have coyotes, but now we do. Um, and you'll see yeah, more they, than you see they're, turkeys. They're very adaptable. Very adaptable animals. I mean, whenever you whenever you have uh, basically a war waged since the extirpation of the wolf. Yeah. A, a virtual war from aerial gunning to, you know, early days of strychnine and, and 1080 and thallium and sodium cyanide, which they still apply that. Um, and they were able to, you know, to spread throughout the country. I mean, that says a lot for them as an adaptable creature. Yeah. I think adaptive, it, I, wa- uh, I always get these numbers wrong, but it's like 6.5 million of them were essentially exterminated from mid mid 1940s to mid 1950s close to 7 million I don't times. doubt it I don't know the number but it's I think a that's bunch. a yeah it's a bunch yeah. so it's an amazing story and like that you know it's amazing that it's it's kind of tracked your life in in so many ways do you think about why you why you chose coyotes or why predators or or you could have That you know, is so ways. weird yeah I've had people ask me that and I don't know why but coyotes fascinated me from a child uh lying in bed at night on the ranch back in the late 50s and early 60s we didn't have air conditioning and the windows would be open at night and of course we lived like a mile from the Bradus river up on a hilltop and we'd always get a breeze and i remember lying on the bed and the breeze the night breeze blowing the the curtains across my legs and then you'd hear the coyotes start howling and that would just totally fascinate me. And I mean, I would go out and look for their tracks. And of course, they hit up my dad's chickens. And, uh, and there was a, that was a sort of a, a connection that we had with them also. And, um, and then whenever I, I shot that first coyote, it was like, wow, man, I'm hooked forever. I mean, it's, I've, I've just, just uh, have this insatiable desire to learn as much as I could about them. Yeah, because I, I, I've always, I mean, from what you've done in your life, from photography to hunting to trapping to, you know, building out an old jailhouse to live in with your family <laughs> yeah. to you and Rick. I don't even know how you and Rick built that dugout in the in the <laughs> heat was... of the Texas, what was it, like the summer of Texas. You dug out the side of a hill. Uh, 
I don't know how you do what you do, but I mean, you kind of taken taken everything to the nth degree, right? Why not? Crash? I told Rick recently. I said, "Listen, this dugout is fantastic. I love it." You know, we were down there like I was down there yesterday. We planted a bunch of buffalo, sowed some buffalo grass on top to try to minimize some of the the water erosion. And and I said, "I'm not going to do anymore." You know, I'm tired. I mean, this was an endeavor that that still baffles me because it was in the summer of 2015. And in 2016 is whenever I had a stint. Yep. And I asked the, the cardiologist, it was a 90% blockage in my left uh, left aorta and uh, artery. And uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a heart surgeon. So I don't know which one's AR or artery, but anyway. I had comparative anatomy, comparative anatomy at Tech, but I forgot all that stuff. But anyway, he said, uh, I asked him, I said, why didn't I go down? Because there were days that we were cutting down trees that weighed 150, 200 pounds and carrying those things in 100-degree weather to the pickup, loading them in a trailer, these 15, 20-feet-long trees. Why didn't I drop? And he said, probably that's what saved your life. Mm-hmm. Because when you were jogging that day down that creek with your, with your boots on, and and I was really pushing it hard, and I felt that little tinge, it's that little kind of a, an electrical shock in the middle of my chest, and I went something's not right, and then I went to the cardiologist, and and they did the CT calcium stick scan, and he told me he said you got blockage somewhere, and when he said not when they went in and did the angiogram and. Uh, it was 90% blockage, and I said, well, you know, why didn't I go down? He said, that dugout work, that stress, that hard work that you've been used to probably saved your life. Mm. So that dugout has special meaning to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember I was living in Texas and I visited you guys when it was mostly done. Yeah. And I walked in there, mm. and I walked in there, and I thought, well, you know, Rick and Wyman, they're, you know, no spring chickens, these boys. <laughs> you, <guys are> in <laughs> you. you got, you know. <laughs> You're in your 60s then, right? Weren't you? I was uh, 65. Yeah, 65. 65 years old to do that. I'm 34, and I'd be if I had to look at that job, I'd run. I'd run screaming from it. <laughs> I just I'm telling you. I remember. It's just, yeah, it's it's just yeah, a way it, that it you was, are. It's uh, you know uh, like like uh, flying my drone one day, and I flew over the, the jailhouse and. Uh, and looked down at the, at the uh, patio that I built. It took 12 years uh, to, to build that patio, and I couldn't afford to hire anybody to help me, so basically I did it myself. And then my boys were old enough at the time, sometimes they would work the bobcat loader and help me load rocks. But, you know, we're talking about 1,000-pound rocks, and but I got it in my head. I'm going to do this. And... Uh, it was just, I don't know, just the way I am. Yeah. Some... If I if I get into something, I'm going to do it right, or I'm not going to do it at all. Well, there's just some fantastic lessons in that. You know, when we, when folks like me or other filmmakers try to, like, encapsulate, as I've been a part of, try to take your story and try to tell people wh- what meaning there is in it, that's one, that's a big part of it. I mean, I yeah. when I saw you and Rick just working your tails off to yeah. build that dugout, I thought I was I was just shocked, you know, and just sit there. Well, and then, I was happy. I was happy with the dugout, and then he wanted to do the deck. The deck, yeah, the deck that you guys built is even crazier. Going, give me a 
break, man. And then whenever he, we got finished with the deck, he went, it's not big enough. Let's go. Let's make one. <laughs> let's make it twice as big. So I just shook my head. And, okay, let's do it. And we finished that. And then I did the, uh, then I built the, uh, the rock fire pit. Yeah. And, uh, and finally that's enough. <laughs> that's enough. That's yeah. enough. Well, if you're out there listening to this and you're, you know, you're looking for some motivation, that that's it right there for me. There's a lot of people that are <laughs> fancy themselves motivational speakers, but um, just look up to find photos of Wyman's dugout. And when you see it, I will share some when we share this podcast. When you see it, you're going to be like, huh? <laughs> How? <laughs> yeah. Two guys? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing with the jailhouse. I know people. For people that don't know, you um, took an old jail. What what year was the jailhouse built? Yeah, eighteen eighty seven. Eighteen. So, and what year did what did you what year did you acquire it? I purchased it in nineteen eighty one, and then two other uh, individuals, Tracy Cartwright and uh, Mike Waldron, um, we we tackled it. I, they did the really tough work. You know, we're I'm not a carpenter. I'm Jake Leg at best. You know, I'm weekend weekend guy, and I can't make a square box. But I but what I could tackle was the more crude stuff, like putting in the uh, the uh, floor joist things like that. And uh, but it took about two and a half years to finally get that thing livable. And uh, and it, it was uh, Tracy was here just a, just oh, probably an hour ago, and we were just talking and laughing about the jail. And I told him, I said, I walk over there occasionally, and I'll just just shake my head and just turn and walk out. I just can't <laughs> believe it. I can't believe it happened. Yeah, I mean, if you but talk about a, it, it was a tremendous effort. If you would have told yourself in 1981 that you know, in 2000, I think it was 13 or whenever year it was that you were going to be on uh, HGTV in the, <laughs> I know, it, it was there I, two or I know twice, possibly three times on HGTV. I know twice. Yep. I know another group came in. I, I don't recall who they were, but it's been on on other little TV specials. It's a little short, short runs, uh, news articles. And so, uh, but yeah, it's a, it was a worthy cause. I, I, each time I drive by it, I, I look up and I'm proud that it happened. Yeah. But, uh, but I don't get on top of it anymore. I used to, I used to uh, get on, uh, get up, take a ladder and pull it up on top of the house portion and then extend that up on the eaves of the jail and then climb up to the very uh, top, which is like 30 feet up and, and uh, inspect the, the tin and the skylight. But I don't do that anymore. Mainly <laughs> from, uh, from my wife, from Selinda saying, you are not going on top of the jail anymore. <laughs> well, thank the Lord for Selinda being there to keep you, keep you grounded. <laughs> Literally in that case. <laughs> you know, I will tell you yeah. when you when you're telling a story of stints. You know, my dad just oh three weeks ago had mm-hmm. had a big heart attack and had oh my goodness three stints put in. He had three ninety percent blockages. Wow! Um, and I remembered you having that done back in you know those years and telling me about that. My dad has has had heart problems for some time, um, mm-hmm. but it, it it got me to thinking about. When it happened, we were locked down, so I couldn't go see him. But and he's fine, right. and he's he's relatively fine now. But there were some emotions in it for me, like thinking about my relationship, what my dad had meant to me, what I might mean to my children. You know, you, mm-hmm. I'm sure you you've thought about that before. But I know one thing we've never really talked about was your relationship with your dad. 
kind of what he meant to you and how he helped you become who you are? Well, dad, of course, was one of the old fellas that uh, older people that he was born in 1918. And uh, and he grew up without much in mm-hmm. a big family. Uh, I can't I don't recall exactly, but he had like, you know, four or five brothers and a couple of sisters and they just didn't have much. But uh, he grew up working all, you know, very hard. And uh, uh, he taught my brother and I uh, a good work ethic. You know, you don't uh, you don't just come by things sitting on your butt. And I guess that's one of the reasons the jail got it was, I mean, the, the dugout and the jail was accomplished because we just believed in work and hard work. And that's, that's, uh, you derive good things whenever you uh, take time and energy to, to, you know, show people you care and are willing to work. And so that's, that's one of the things that dad uh, instilled in us. And also unlike a lot of old timers, I mean, Whenever I was cowboying as a as a young boy and a teenager, you know, he expected me to be a cowboy. I broke horses, uh, you know, rope through cattle, you know, th- branded. I did the whole schmear, something I have no interest in anymore. But uh, Dad realized early that wasn't in my heart. He realized that, uh, as the old adage goes, I, I just danced to a different tune. Hmm. I loved hunting. That was my deal. When I worked cattle, I was also interested in archaeology and paleontology because I was constantly looking for arrowhead and bones. And he told my mother one day, he walked in the house and said, I don't know, I don't know about that boy. He's not ever going to make a cowboy because he just his heart's not in it. And, and Dad realized that. And so he let me go my direction. And that's, that's, that was something big about, about the old timers. I mean, that, that was a tough call for him. Yeah. You know, a lot of people know you're going to do this. Um, now I know my mom, she was born in 26 and she always thought I would have a, a desk job. She's, I know whenever I got out of, of tech and 74, she said, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to trap for a while. She said, you need to get a job in and, and have a desk job. I said, well, that's the last thing I want to do. And she never said much more about it after that. But she thought because I was an educated person, I needed to use it. But uh, but both mom and dad let me let me dance to my own team. Yeah, and I appreciate that. That's a big part. I know you've always told me stories about when you and Rick were kids, like you just kind of were gone. They would let you just go and be on the ranch yeah, they, and live that life. They would, yeah, ride horses, uh, go hunt. Uh, they started out early and just said, look, you know, be careful, uh, but they weren't hovering helicopter parents. Uh, they just said, watch for rattlers. And Lord knows we lived right right on, basically on top of a den. Yeah. And we would walk across big rattlers coiled up that would, uh, and that's probably one of the reasons that I don't kill rattlesnakes today is because I don't, there's no telling how many rattlers let me walk by them as a little boy. In, in my youthful years and just said, Hey, he's a punk kid. I'm going to let him go. <laughs> and, yep. uh, because I, I can remember coming up on some that like lifting up a piece of wood and there'd be this huge rattler laying there. 
and I just let it back down. Yeah, he could have struck out and hit me in the leg. And so, uh, but mom and dad basically just said, watch for rattlers and be careful with those guns. That, that's, and uh, they just let us go. That'd be a nice t-shirt for, for <laughs> <That's> Tony. <laughs> so, <laughs> I like that. I like that. You keep it. <laughs> um, uh, I can't. I just tell Celinda she can make that happen. <laughs> and she, I'll tell you what, we've got a lady who does t-shirts, and I believe I'm going to put, I'm going to have a t-shirt made. All I request <laughs> is just you send me one of the first ones. I'll wear it every day. I will. You got it, man. <laughs> well, listen, Wyman, that's a great, that's a great note to end on, man. I um. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you and appreciate talking to you and sharing well, stories. Thank and thanks for, thanks for being so willing to share stuff with everybody. I think it's important for a lot of people. Well, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm at that point in life where I don't mind, you know, sharing with people and helping people and instilling, uh, you know, some enthusiasm for what they what they have in their hearts. And if I can do that, I'm willing to help. You're doing it. All right, man. All right, man. I appreciate thanks you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ben. That's it. That's all. Another episode in the books. Thank you to Mr. Wyman Menzer and his wife, Celinda, their entire wonderful family there in Benjamin, Texas. Can't wait to I can get on the plane so I can go down and visit him, take some photos, maybe shoot some coyotes, depending on how he feels and we feel. But a wonderful conversation, a wonderful man. Another one of these people that are kind of in my world that I, uh, looking back on all my interactions, all of the podcasts, everybody I've met through hunting and through being in the outdoors, um, boy, I'm thankful for Wyman. Very, very, very thankful for him. And so, really appreciate all that he said and has done for our show. And uh, Joe Fernando and Phil, of course, T Engineer. We got through we got through the um, the difficult topic of race and riots in the United States. We talked to you about regenerative agriculture. Uh, we're going to kind of put to bed at some level for now the Brett Bond, Glenn Bond bear attack story. We're going to move on to other things. Um, a lot of a lot of good stuff planned in upcoming episodes. Before we we go, I, I just Phil discovered this email from Russ Taggart. Now, um, I there's no secret that I want to get a title sponsor from White Claw in the show. Are you aware of that, Phil? I made that clear, right? Several times. Several yes. times. So this is a, an official plea to the folks at White Claw. You think anybody listens in the White Claw marketing team? I don't know. I mean, they're kind of a big deal. There's probably like one or two meat eater fans somewhere in there, right? Yeah. So maybe they're listening. Maybe they're hearing maybe. this. Maybe they're feeling charitable. Maybe they're feeling like there's a lot of compelling, engaging content, a lot of synergies, a lot of marketing speak here. I'm speaking to you, marketing people at White Claw. Um, Russ Taggart wrote, and he, and he said this, and this is something that if I happen to work in marketing at White Claw, I'd probably want to hear um, as, as Ben O'Brien, the influencer. Mm-hmm. Uh, ben, a special thanks as I have heard you refer to drinking White Claw. On a recent trip to town, Russ is from Canada, I came across White Claws in the liquor store and I knew I had to try them. As I pondered the selection of flavors, he spells it with a U, Canadian spelling, mm. I thought of Phil right away. When I saw they came in mango, it clearly was a sign. Tasty and refreshing. Thanks again, Russ. Just thought I'd read that. You know, Ben, we disagree uh, on a lot of things. Uh, one of them being the White Claw flavor tier. 
flavor tears. Um, but one thing we agree on mm. is that mango is a top tier flavor. Real quick. <laughs> <laughs> Just quickly before we go. I know we, we all have to get places. This show has been a little scatterbrained. I, I, I'm aware. Phil's going to clean it up for us. Uh, watermelon. My new top flavor. Just come on, just man. A, just a just an awful, awful, just a what? bad opinion. Just wrong. It's just a wrong. Have opinion. you had the watermelon? Uh, yeah, it's not. I don't want that in my hard seltzer. Oh, it's like watermelon a... Jolly Rancher. Great, A plus. Watermelon White Claw. Get, just get out of here. God, I'm done. Get, nice, just a nice get day the hell of. Out. I'm done. A nice day of bear hunting. And I go to the gas station, you know, and there, there, in the is a nice forty size. I did this the other day. There's like a giant can. I mean, just, you know, tall as a tall man, I felt. Uh-huh. And then it was watermelon white cloth. I got one. Yeah. And then I safely drove home without drinking any of it. And then when I got home, I let loose. And before I had unpacked my stuff in the garage, I had drank two-thirds of the watermelon white claw tall boy. I was feeling really good. Uh-huh. And that's when I decided it's time. I mean, listen, we all can't have uh, just sophisticated palates that appreciate the the um, noble pea and the be- the better white claw flavors of natural lime and, and grapefruit. Uh, but, grapefruit? You know, that's okay. That's fine. All, right. all hail watermelon. We'll see you next time with The Hunting Collective. Bye. Because I can't go a week without doing wrong. Without doing First Light has always made the world's best base layers. They're warm, breathable, silent, and odor-resistant. But the women's fit and the gear weren't meeting our demands, so we went back to the beginning and rebuilt everything. Re-engineering the gear with the most dedicated female hunters in mind, First Light modernized the fit and added more sizes, colors, and camo patterns. I personally have been testing the women's gear over the last couple of years, uh, from the mountains in Idaho to the plains in Nebraska, and I feel like the fit especially has landed in a much better spot. It's more true to size. It's not as tight and binding in certain areas like a lot of women's fit. Uh, All of the pieces, to me, got an all-around upgrade. It's awesome to see. So for yourself or as a gift this Mother's Day, pick up First Light's new women's merino wool and get free shipping on all orders containing women's gear. Available now at F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E dot com.